Welcome to another episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholarship and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate some of the great work being done by historians of the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with our listeners ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For today's episode, we have with us in the studio two instructors in the History Department of the Naval Academy, Captain Bob Q. We'll be interviewing Captain B.J. Armstrong about his 2019 book, Small Boats and Daring Men, Maritime Raiding, Irregular Warfare, and the Early American Navy. Sir, I just want to start off by thanking you for taking some time out of your afternoon to talk about this book. Uh, it's a very interesting book. I think you do some very interesting things. There's a very uh, new conceptual interpretation of different forms of naval warfare, but at the same time, you talk about uh, many great stories, some that we're very familiar with, some that are more unheard of, uh, more uh, unconventional, uh, dare I say irregular. Uh, and so I'm excited to start talking about this and learn about uh, your process in developing this project. So I'll start right at the beginning. What was it that first drew your attention to this project? Thanks for, the, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work again. So the, the reality is that the subject matter kind of came out of two different sources. The first one was, as I was getting ready to start working on my PhD, I got some advice from a mentor of mine, a, a great historian and naval thinker named Jerry Hendricks, who told me to make sure I pick a subject where everybody's dead and all their kids are dead. <laughs> Because as a naval officer in uniform, an active duty officer, I needed to make sure that I kept enough distance away from anything that might cause any consternation as I drew my conclusions. Um, and of course, I went to the extreme, right? I went about as far back as you can possibly go to the early American Navy. The other reason for this topic was as I was wrestling with possible dissertation topics, I kept coming back to my own experience as a naval officer. I'm a helicopter pilot by trade. I uh, was a search and rescue and special warfare pilot. Most of my deployments were along with Marine Expeditionary Units on board amphibious ready groups. I had spent, at that point, 16, 17 years not really doing anything that looked like a traditional naval battle, right? Nothing about the mission sets that I flew looked like fleet-on-fleet -fleet engagement or the kinds of things that we stereotypically think about when we think about navies and their operations. Um, so I had deployed 20 years ago, right now, I guess, right? I had deployed for OIF-1 with the Marine MAGTAF, the Amphibious Task Force East, as we took the Marines over there for the start of the war and then were there for the first six months. Not really a traditional naval mission, right? There wasn't a naval element to that other than strike and amphibious warfare. Right. I spent time in the Caribbean. We were conducting joint interagency operations with the DEA, hunting drug lords in different islands in the Caribbean and in Central America. I had spent time in the Gulf of Aden, counter-piracy operations, counter-terrorist mm. missions in the Horn of Africa. I had spent time off of the coast of Libya during the Libyan Civil War, during Operation Unified Protector, working with NATO. These were all something different than fleets engaged with fleets. Right. 
And so part of the subject matter was me really trying to explain my own career to myself. What, is, what are the roots of these kinds of things that I did as a naval officer, the kinds of operations I conducted as a helicopter pilot uh, out in the fleet? And by going all the way back to the early American era, I not only you know, achieved the advice that Captain <laughs> Hendricks gave me, but I also you know, had the opportunity to separate myself from current doctrine, modern affairs, and kind of the, the ability that that has to influence the way we analyze things. Right. So I went back as far as I could to, in order to stay in a historical mindset and do a, what I considered a deeply historical amount of work. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up your case studies because it was a really interesting mix of case studies. So you have eight total, uh, three or more counter piracy, maritime security, peacetime. Uh, the remaining ones are more during a, de a war, declared or undeclared. But I also like that there's a mix of stories that are somewhat familiar. So John Paul Jones's raid on Whitehaven or the intrepid in the Philadelphia, famously the most daring naval act of the age, if Nelson ever actually said that. Uh, but then there are other stories that are a little bit less, less well-known. Uh, are, are there any particular stories, if you had to pick a favorite story that you found from this, are there any that kind of really appealed to you or you discovered something that you didn't really expect to find? The whole book is made up of stuff that I didn't expect to find. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, even, even in going and looking at John Paul Jones and Whitehaven, right. right? You know, going and diving deeply into the archival material and trying to figure out how that really worked, you know, what, what the cruise of Ranger was really like. It changed my view of John Paul Jones, right? And I came into this uh, very much more in line, it turned out, with what Bradford was thinking of this figure who not only from a personal level is a very complicated individual. I, mean, right. I know we hold him up for heritage reasons here at the Naval Academy. He's a super complicated personality. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Um, so you get to see some of that in these examples, right? The, the events at St. Mary's that follow the raid on Whitehaven when he lands and tries to kidnap the Earl of Selkirk and, and the whole story of stealing the household silver and then returning it lady, later to Lady Selkirk um, and writing a really bizarre letter to her that almost reads like a come on. Like, it's very strange. But reading that kind of stuff really humanizes the right. historical figures that we study. And I think in discovering the kinds of things that John Paul Jones thought about but didn't do, I also found interesting. They're kind of hinted at here in the, in the chapter, but you know, John Paul Jones was sent uh, to Cape Breton Island for an amphibious prison break early in the war. It didn't pan out. Turned out there were too many guard ships there. There had been a group of American POWs who had been taken there to work in the mines. Right. Uh, and he was going to go free them. Those were his orders. Turns out it was a little bit too well defended. He decides and a storm rolls in. It, it, for a number of reasons, the operation doesn't pan out. But the, the very idea that he was going to try this raiding operation in British Canada to try and free POWs was really interesting to me. I'd never realized that this happened before. He put a whole operational plan together to raid Pensacola. Now, Jones had been on the raid on Nassau as a lieutenant. Right. And he kind of learned from that experience. And he looked, they looked down at Pensacola and said, you know what? It's kind of like Nassau. The British aren't really protecting that area. There's a couple forts there. We could go raid them and see what we can pull away from the thing. 
And then there's so much British merchant traffic coming in and out of New Orleans. Right. We can just sit off the coast and pick off as many ships as we want until we run out of prize crews and then come home. And he put together this whole operational plan. It fell apart because Isaac Hopkins kind of got wind of the fact that Jones, his junior, was trying to put together this, what Hopkins saw as glory-seeking mission, hmm. and he kind of shot holes in it and basically wouldn't give Jones the resources he needed to pull it off. But you start to learn about these things that, that John Paul Jones thought about, never actually achieved, but thought about, and you start to see this raiding and other kind of naval operation developing as an important part of how he thought about maritime warfare. Um, so even in that case of John Paul Jones, a guy who we've studied so many times, and right. I learned things. I developed new insights on him and, and how his biography related to this stuff. And then there are subjects that I just had no idea about right when I started chasing them into the archive. Mm -hmm. I remain fascinated by the counter-piracy operations in the Caribbean in the 1820s. Right, it makes up a chapter of the book. Um, you know, someday, someday I'll write a whole book on that because it really is fascinating. There are so many facets to what was going on there: um, political, military, economic, peace or war, the collapse of the Spanish Empire. I mean, just really fascinating parts of early 19th century history that are all wrapped up in that moment. Uh, and make for not only interesting things to analyze as a historian, but as you pointed out, some really great stories to tell too. I, I think uh, on Jones, I think that it's great that you begin with Jones because Jones has almost become, I don't think, actually not almost, he, he is a central figure in the myth-making of, of the U.S. Navy, right? And so he's, when, when Theodore Roosevelt tries to create the myth of the Navy and it supports his idea of a battle fleet, John Paul Jones is kind of the patron saint that they literally excavate and make the figurehead of this. And so I think he's a, he's a great figure to illustrate the fact that, no, this raiding a regular warfare thing goes back to the very birth of the U.S. Navy. I'm glad you brought up the, the, the counter-piracy mission, though, because I actually was very curious about that because it's so, it's so interesting. It's so weird. And I think you actually are continuing to work on this a little bit, and specifically this idea of the Anglo-American cooperation in this counter-piracy mission, that essentially less than 10 years after these two navies are at war, they are somehow working together in order to combat these South American privateers. So I, I, was, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that specific aspect of the, of the problem, uh, and then if you are continuing to work on this, what, you, what the angle is on that. So the, as you point out, it, it's a work in progress. Um, but yeah, I, I have been diving back into the sources, back into the archives, back into the microfilm of the U.S. Navy in this era. Um, as you said, this is, this is the blink of an eye after the War of 1812. Between the end of the War of 1812 and the president's address to Congress in 1825, when he says largely the piracy issues in the Caribbean have been handled, is 10 years. And during that period, there is a fundamental change in the relationship between the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy. We go from two forces that are, well, they're trying to kill each other, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's war. It's the right. War of 1812. They're, they're trying to kill each other, quite literally, 
And they go from that to launching combined operations under shared command against pirate camps off the coast of Cuba and really kind of working together in ways that we today would see as perfectly natural in the Anglo-American relationship, but seem way outside the norm of the early 19th century. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and what we think of of the Anglo-American relationship then, right? It's also interesting, right? This is the moment of the Monroe Doctrine. It's a great point. 100 years ago this year, you know, this is, or 200 years ago, the, centenary, the bicentenary of the Monroe Doctrine. And why is Monroe and his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, confident that they can pull off this, quite frankly, aggressive policy as national policy? I'm still working in the sources. I'm still trying to figure this out. I have a suspicion that the Navy is a part of that. Because the Navy is showing enormously successful ability to plan and conduct operations in the Caribbean Interesting. during these operations. They're showing the ability to work with the Royal Navy about as closely as you possibly can, fighting alongside them. Those are the kinds of things that a president or a secretary of state or a secretary of the Navy would be thinking about when deciding whether they're going too far. You know, how much of a risk am I taking here? Well, if it seems like we're really friendly with the British and they seem to be, in a maritime perspective, a naval perspective, on the same side, maybe it's not as risky as it appears. Interesting. So I'm still wrestling with this. I've been trying to get into more into John Quincy Adams' diary to see how much he's talking about this potential insight. Um, it may not pan out. I may not find something that really helps me support this idea. But the operations that are conducted are everything from joint rescue and salvage operations to joint combat operations. The Americans save, um, the, the HMS Bastard comes down with a ginormous outbreak of yellow fever. Oh, wow. Uh, and they pull into Thompson's Island, to Key West as we know it today, right. to the naval base, that's a, the American naval base that's established there. And the American surgeons nurse them back to health, resupply them, and send them back to Jamaica. Um, it's there's there's these examples of these pretty dramatic Anglo-American cooperative events that occur throughout that decade of campaigning against piracy that are really kind of interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's something that really leapt out to me because I, I think a lot of people look at the relationship we have in Great Britain today and kind of assume, oh, well, we spoke English, so it must have always been like this. We fought two wars, but then we were friends, whereas, you know, in reality... Relations between the two countries were very tense and, and, and multiple periods in the 1800s. I kept coming back to the modern day relevance of this. Even uh, your, your description of how you kind of wanted to explain your own career to yourself really, really resonated with me. Um, you know, thinking about Marine Corps doctrine, Marine Corps talks about how there's five types of amphibious operations. There's an assault, a raid, a withdrawal, and a demonstration. And then number five, other, right? And, and most of what the Marine Corps has actually done in the last 30 years has been other. Um, and, and I guess I would ask you, you know, in terms of modern day irregular warfare, do you feel like the Navy and Marine Corps do it right? Uh, do you feel like we, we fall short? Do you feel like we don't give it the conceptual space it deserves? How, how do you think we're doing right now? So I guess, uh, I guess I should preface an answer to that question with the caveat <laughs> that the opinions expressed are mine and mine alone and represent my personal and academic work and not the U.S. Navy, United States Naval Academy, or Marine Corps. 
I think the Navy and the Marine Corps, we'll, we'll just say since World War II, has a complicated relationship with these kinds of operations. I say complicated because they've been doing them. I'm not sure that they've wanted to. Right. Um, there's not much doctrine involved in this stuff. It's often seen, and, and you may have heard it described as, often we hear this in military analysis in, in the contemporary world, as a lesser included part of the missions of the Navy and Marine Corps. That meaning, hey, we'll practice for the big wars, and that'll give us the skills we need to handle these little things. That doesn't work, hasn't tended to work. It's why we have to reinvent the wheel. It's why after all of the hard work developing riverine operations in the Vietnam War, that knowledge basically disappeared from the Navy. And in fact, when they went to try and rebuild the riverine squadrons at the start of the long war, they actually turned to Vietnam vets to help teach them because the pubs didn't exist anymore. The doctrine didn't exist anymore. The, the, the background didn't exist anymore. There's actually a great story when Captain Peter Schwartz, who was working as an analyst at CNA at the time, got together a bunch of old Brownwater Navy sailors from Vietnam and mm -hmm. put them in a room with a bunch of, and this was circa probably 2004, 2005 maybe, okay. with a bunch of Vietnam vets and modern day commanders to say, okay, we're going to reestablish re the Riverine and Coastal Force can you guys tell us what you did <laughs> so that we can learn from it? Um, it's interesting. It's almost going back to the 1800s model of learning where you would just learn from the people you were serving with or under. And I think it illustrates a relative lack of interest by the institutions right. in this kind of thing. Now, there's arguably good reason for that, right? Like Mahan tells us in some of his writing that when you're doing naval strategy and national strategy – you have two different things you're worried about. You're worried about the most dangerous thing, right. and you're worried about the most likely thing. And those rarely are the same thing. Right. Right? And so developing strategy in, in the way Mahan tells it is figuring out whatever the balance is going to be between those two realities. And the most dangerous thing for the U.S. Navy for most of the time since World War II has been the potential for a global war with the Soviet Union. And so that's what the Navy focused on and trained for and prepared for. And that makes sense. There's a logic to that, right? But there is the possibility that stuff was overlooked um, that would have been useful to us in the past 20 years, let's say, and that arguably is useful to us today when we think about potential adversaries like the Russian Federation or like the People's Republic of China. How do you engage in a great power competition as the 2018 national military strategy characterizes this, how do, you, how do you take part in great power competition, especially great power competition that doesn't rise to the point of outright war? And a lot of what I've written about in this book, th that describes what I've written about in this book. You know, And so we can think about those types of maritime operations and how they might influence how we think about the present day. The way, I, the way I describe it to students is history does not provide us answers today. Right. Right? It does not provide us a checklist of things to do to be successful in our current problem. What history gives us is the ability to ask better questions right. about the challenge we face today. 
And if we've got a wide and, and contextual understanding of our naval past, we'll see parallels that will trigger questions. Oh, okay, so if the People's Republic of China has a maritime militia made up of fishing boats that are actually militarized, how do you engage with that? Do we have the right force mixture, force design for that? Right. I'm running a theme in this book. Right. And so how do you look at the way force design affects irregular warfare capability? And it doesn't mean you scrap your entire fleet. What we're talking about is percentages here. You know, one of the things that, that Captain Hendricks, Jerry Hendricks, wrote about at one point earlier in his career is, like, what we're talking about here is siphoning off 5 to 10%. Right of the overall shipbuilding budget to build small combatants that can do these interesting things. It's not a lot of money in comparison to the overall, but it's still a choice and an investment Yeah, that the Navy largely has not made in the past 75 years. Yeah, and I think it's th th this idea of most of what we're doing now when we're talking about competition below the spectrum of conflict, often it is these kind of maritime security operations, right? Uh, and you know, I, I remember, I, I often talk to my class about this idea that as America grows into a global superpower, we exercise this world's policeman role. But being a policeman is a lot different than being a soldier or, you know, a sailor or a Marine or something, right? So it's actually a very different mission set. Uh, it can, it calls for different skill sets. Uh, but it's also not necessarily new. You know, we often right. think of that you know, world's policeman role as a as a unipolar moment kind of role, right? A, a post-Cold War role. But if you look at what the Navy was doing in the Caribbean in the 1820s, yeah. what were they doing? They were making the seas safe for merchant trade for everybody. And those convoys that they ran back then, they weren't just for American ships. Anybody who wanted to join the convoy would be protected by the U.S. Navy. And, and that's actually one of the things I found also fascinating about the Caribbean chapter, because there is kind of this sense of, oh, you know, the 1800s, the Royal Navy is the protector of the seas, and American commerce just kind of rides in the coattails of the Royal Navy. But right there in that chapter, you see how right off the shores of America, uh, the United States is taking a very active role in ensuring the freedom of the seas and freedom of navigation and safe commerce. And, all that. and it's not just there. You know, in the late 1820s, there's a a series of operations, you might even call it campaign, by the European squadron, Mediterranean squadron of the U.S. Navy that's forward deployed to the Med during the, the war for Greek independence. There's a number of kind of piracy events that happen in the eastern Mediterranean during that kind of time period that we're talking about of right. the Greek independence movement. Um, and a number of American merchant ships are attacked. A number of merchant ships from other countries are attacked. And the American Mediterranean Squadron swings into action and conducts a number of counter-piracy operations in the Greek Isles in the latter part of the 1820s. Again, as you point out, many of the same people are involved right. here as who had been in the Caribbean just a couple years earlier. And then we see a similar thing develop in the China Seas yeah. as we move into the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. And again, we see the Americans and the British collaborating on the establishment of good order at sea. Granted, there are colonial and imperial overtones, especially on the British side of what's going on. But they're still looking at that idea of, of protecting or maintaining freedom of the seas and free navigation in multiple areas of the world's oceans and in a way that I think is kind of counter to the 
overall narrative of America in the 19th century, which right. is often seen as kind of isolationist. Focused on continental expansion, maybe, not so much focused on the world. No, that's exactly. And, and what the Navy's doing is far more global and far more contributing to, you know, today we talk about the liberal world order. It, it's right. contributing to the world order of the 19th century. It's, it's interesting because that's, you know, I'm think, if I'm thinking about looking at these instances of irregular warfare, it's actually really exciting to see how it actually pushes back earlier a lot of these trends that we thought started much later. Uh, I mean, you talk about, for instance, steam, the, the seagull and its use in, the, in, in these uh, anti-piracy operations, decades before when we commonly think of the first steam vessel in the U.S. Navy. Yeah, the seagull's <laughs> awesome. The first, the first American... Naval steamboat to engage in combat operations is actually in the 1820s in the Caribbean. Right. It's this converted, and the other interesting thing here, right? It's a converted ferry boat. What are the expeditionary fast transports today in the U.S. Navy? Yes. They're Astal designed, former ferry boat designs, right? right? Um, and Seagull is sent to the Caribbean with this West Indies squadron. To be a mothership, you know, today we would call it a mothership. What do they do? Well, they take a bunch of these barges and, and cutters that have been purpose designed for raiding the coastline of Cuba and pirate camps. They tow them using the steamboat. The raiding parties, you know, are birthed and fed on the steamboat. Right. They take them to the operational area. And then when they think they found a pirate camp or they think they found a pirate ship that they have to chase down, everybody clambers into their barges and boats and sets to the oars yeah. and heads out after them. And then comes back to Seagull at the end of the day with whatever prize they've captured or with stories of whatever pirate camp they've burned. Seagull herself is armed and takes part in a number of bombardments of camps right. and combat operations. Like you said, this is 20 years earlier than most of the narrative of the steam navy kind of gives us the story of. You know, it's really the 1840s when we start to see the first ocean deployable U.S. Navy warships that are powered by steam. Um, but yeah, Seagull's way earlier than that. Well, I, I think the uh, comparison of the Seagull to an expeditionary transport dog is is a great final example of how old is new again. Um, so with that, sir, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to, to come out and chat about the book. Very excited about your new projects, uh, and uh, thank you for participating in the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me aboard. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.